The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified or poured oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you. Let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Skip over to chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 6. What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all scented powders of the merchant? Behold, it's the couch of Solomon, sixty mighty men around it of the mighty men of Israel. All of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. King Solomon has made for himself a sedan, so you know what he drives, from timber of Lebanon. He has made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple fabric, with its interior lovingly fitted out. (laughs) In other words, they pimped his ride. (laughs) By the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart. Oh, Jesus, as we open a new book, wow. This one has been blowing my mind. And I'm so impressed and amazed and and truly, Lord, touched by the words in the Song of Songs. I get the title now. And I pray that You would sing it to us, Lord. That Your Spirit would sing it to our hearts. And we would hear Your love call to us this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. How many of you here, no one in first service could answer positively on this one. How many of you here have been to a poetry slam? See, I knew you had, Kim. I just knew it. (laughs) Why did I know? A poetry slam. If you don't know what it is, my daughter Hannah has kind of explained it to me. She's been to a few in in Spokane near the college there. Apparently the idea behind a poetry slam, I, I think, I could be wrong, but I think it's kind of this generation's answer to the beatnik coffee houses, you know, of the 60s with the smoke and the coffee or whatever other substance, and someone would share a poem, and they'd be, yeah, man, yeah, cool, cool. But at a poetry slam, nowadays it's a bit different. Now the poet is judged by five members of the audience. And they're judged on overall content and and presentation, and they have to bring this poetry, and, and that's kind of what it's all about. Now, the thing about poetry, and we are into a serious poem, a wonderful, marvelous poem this morning, but the thing about poetry we need to understand is the author's intentions are not often the same as the listener's interpretation. Anyone who knows music knows that there can be, there can be a difference. Because poetry, music, song, it's an emotional, gut-level thing. We get a response to music that we get from few other things when we hear uh, poetry and song. And and, you know, I I actually, Hannah and I wrote a poem together several years ago that I'm pretty sure sparked her love of poetry and music. Years ago, we were driving up Commercial Avenue there in Anacortes. And on what used to be called the Dessert Show, those of you from Anacortes, you know the old pink building there that used to be a, a dessert place. It's now defunct, tragically. But we're driving up the road, and on the sign, it said, Hedgehog Sunday. Hedgehog Sunday. I saw that, and, I, and Hannah and I, it was just hilarious. We started pinging off of each other. She said, Hedgehog, Hedgehog Sunday? What is that? And I said, Hair and gunk and loads of fat. <laughs> she said, sounds rather spiky and painful to me. I said, ah, but it cleans your teeth well, you see. <laughs> who would eat this awful feast, she says. Someone who loves frozen wildebeest, I said. <laughs> oh dear, now I feel quite ill. You should try it with our creamy maggot fill. And we just went on and on. But, but do you see how beautiful a poem can be? <laughs> I mean, aren't you touched, moved, emotionally drawn in? Hearts just open now to hear. Here's the thing. What you hear when I say that is, okay, that's kind of disgusting. It's maybe a little funny, a little bizarre. You know what I hear? Hannah's laughter. 
I remember, I am immediately, when I read that, as disgusting as it is, I'm immediately drawn back to Commercial Avenue several years ago with my daughter laughing, and I can hear her laugh when I, when I read that to you. My interpretation and yours, two different things. My experience, different. And as we enter the most poetic book of the entire Bible, we need a sense of what's behind the inspiration. We truly need ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So that we don't interpret out in strange and and different ways. You know, when you get into poetry, even when you get into some prophecy in Scripture, cults love to take it and run with it. Making bizarre, strange interpretations. It always has to do with their particular cult. Well, this beautiful, romantic, graceful song has drawn a lot of interpretation over the years. And so we need to hear, Lord, we need to hear from your Spirit on this. The Song of Songs. In Hebrew, the Shir Hashirim. Shir Hashirim. The author is Shaloma Solomon. But note this, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Song of Songs is set in the third and final section of the Hebrew Bible. Now perhaps you weren't aware, our, what we call the Old Testament, I like to call it the Older Testament, actually has all the same books as the typical Jewish Bible today, the Hebrew Bible. But the order's not the same. In the Hebrew Bible, what's called the Tanakh, there is the first section, Torah, which is the Law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The second section, called the Nevi'im in Hebrew, and that's the Prophets. And that has all the books of the Prophets then that follow right after Torah. And then the third and final section is called the Ketuvim. Ketuvim. And in fact... That's where the name Tanakh comes from. Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, Tanakh. In the Ketuvim, which is, by the way, where we've been for the last two years, is what we call the wisdom literature. I was shocked. You know, we started Job two years ago, January. And so we've been in this section of Scripture this whole time called the wisdom literature. It's more poetic. It's filled with songs. It's been a wonderful journey, and we're not quite done. This has included Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and now the Song of Songs. And boy, I, I don't know if it was intentional, but to have Song of Songs follow Ecclesiastes is stunning. Because we've spent the last five weeks talking about people who have a lost mentality, a secular humanist mentality, a mentality that says if there is a God, He's distant and uninvolved. And then we come into the Song of Songs where literally Jesus will say, I love you. I love you. And it is time for us to hear that, and it is time for us to tell the world that. This fellowship, please hear me, it is time for us to get out and tell the world of Jesus' love. It's time to move. And you look around. I mean, there's a lot, of, there's a lot going on. God is moving in this season. And I am absolutely convinced, and I can speak this as from the Lord, that He wants us to get out. And share the love of Jesus like we never have before. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. Here's the thing. I mentioned the Tanakh. And the whole reason that I mentioned those three sections and that the Song of Songs is in the last section, the Ketuvim, is this. Most rabbis believe the entire Tanakh was written by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. The Ruach HaKodesh. But they add one curious caveat to the Ketuvim, to that third section. They will say the Ketuvim, Song of Songs included, have one level less authority than the Torah and the Nevi'im or the prophets. One level less authority. So all the writings involved in that third section, while inspired by the Holy Spirit, don't quite have the authority that the first two sections have. I thought that was interesting. Why is that? The reason is because while it's believed that these books and the writings in the Ketuvim have spiritual inspiration... They, they appear far more human in nature. There's too much humanity in them. So they have to pull it down a level and say it's not quite as, as beautiful as the Torah or the prophets. Not quite as inspired. Inspired, yeah, but not quite as authoritative. So we've got to take it down a notch. I, I can see where they're coming from. Uh, because wherever there's poetry, there are problems. Wherever there are songs, there are sensations, and sometimes we don't handle those so well. Our humanity can easily get in the way. I mean, hey, we're emotional beings, right? We get moved by things. Music and poetry stir our hearts and arouse sensation, and they should. 
That's the whole point. And by the way, that's the whole reason I believe God put Song of Songs in Scripture. But I want you to hear me clearly on this. With respect to the old rabbis, just because the Holy Spirit pings off of human emotion doesn't mean the Song of Songs is any less authoritative than the rest of Scripture. You are not just about to enter an inspired poem. You are entering an authoritative word from God. Please understand that. There is inspiration and authority here. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. What's your point, Rick? If the Holy Spirit speaks it, it bears the authority of God because it's His Spirit. I mean, does it make any sense that my spirit could say something that was not in full agreement, didn't have my full stamp of approval? It's my spirit. So when the Holy Spirit of God speaks, it's His spirit. And you can trust it to be just as authoritative as anything else. Jesus, Jesus supported the canonicity of Song of Songs. Canonicity. What is that? That just means the accepted books of Scripture. The books that down through the years people have accepted as these are inspired truly by God. And Jesus supports it. Where does Jesus support the Song of Songs as being you know, both inspired and authoritative? Listen, he taught and he read the same Hebrew scriptures we have today. Song of Songs was in the book when Jesus walked on the earth. And Jesus said about the Hebrew Bible, John 10.35, the scripture cannot be broken. He said in Matthew 5.18, Truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, or until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law till all is accomplished. Inspired? Yes. Authoritative? Absolutely. So why is it here? Don't forget what else Jesus said about the Hebrew Bible. He said in John 5.39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of Me. Song of Songs is here as a messianic word to His people. More than anything else. We come to the Song of Songs with ears to hear what the Spirit of God has inspired. We come to the Song of Songs with hearts acknowledging the authority of God as seen in this book. And we come to the Song of Songs to meet Jesus Christ. And meet Him we will. Now, this is a wedding song. Like any wedding, there are a number of perspectives at the ceremony. There's the bride's perspective. There's the groom's perspective. You know, there's the pastor. There's the wedding party. There are the guests. And they all have a different view of this one and same wedding. And so I want to share with you four different views of the Song of Songs this morning. All are correct. All are true interpretation. All of them, I believe, are accurate biblically, but they're just from four perspectives there at the wedding. Alright? Perspective number one. Number one. Song of Songs is the the magnification of marriage. The magnification of marriage. Now, if you're a scholar, you might jot down, this is the literal view. The literal view of the Song of Songs. In other words, this is an actual wedding song of Solomon to a beautiful bride. Which one of 700? We're not really sure. But the song itself elevates the love of a man and woman in marriage. And let me just say something here, and I'll come back to this later on. This is just Rick's opinion, so don't jot it down as, you know, literal fact. It's just kind of what I think. I don't think Solomon wrote this necessarily for one of the 700 wives. I think he wrote it as the ideal. Which is part of the reason I wonder, maybe he had 700 wives because he kept looking for the perfect marriage and couldn't find it. And so he writes Song of Songs, and this this beautiful, emotional, even erotic at times, song lists marriage between a man and woman to the highest plane, the highest ideal, and it's absolutely beautiful as we go. By the way, because of the sensuality in this song, the Jewish people did not allow their young men to read it until they were 30 years old. So those of you under 30, I'd like to ask you to go ahead and exit the barn, head out the door. You know, it's funny, I tried to look and find out, what if they're married? Are they still not allowed to read it? Because it could help, you know. Anyway, Ironside had this to say. 
He said, Wedded life in Israel represented the very highest and fullest and deepest affection at a time when the surrounding nations of Israel or the nations around Israel, in those nations, woman was looked upon as mere chattel, as a slave, or as the object of a man's pleasure to be discarded when and as he pleased. But it was otherwise in Israel. The Jewish home was a place where love and tenderness reigned. And no doubt this little book had a great deal to do with lifting it up to that glorious height. In the Song of Songs, God magnifies marriage. He magnifies it. It's beautiful. And I'll tell you what, this song in the Bible is probably the greatest proof that God's intention that marriage be between one man and one woman for one life is right. It's right here, it is bold, and it is the centerpiece of Scripture. That marriage was God's plan, God's standard from the beginning. We have messed it up. We have scarred it. And today, it's, it's almost unthinkable where it has gone. The attack that marriage is under right now. Jesus said in Matthew 19.4, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. But this glorious, wonderful, beautiful union between a man and a woman, our society, our culture, like so many before, are trying to undermine and degrade and attack it. And I think you probably know what I'm talking about. How much money would you spend to protect marriage as a union between a man and a woman? It's been in the news this last week, and I'm not going to state which party. Those of you who have heard this in the news probably know. But one political party is all on the case of the other political party in Washington because that political party is putting more money, setting aside more money, out of Congress to fight for marriage as between a man and a woman. They've more than tripled the amount of money set aside for their lawyers to fight marriage. Why do they do that? Because the Justice Department is not doing the job. And I'll tell you what, if my tax dollars are going to go anywhere, let them go there. To defend marriage, to fight for marriage as it stands, as God intended it to be. Gang, the larger issue behind so-called marital rights today, and I'm talking about for homosexuals, is the undermining and degrading of what the Creator, not Pastor Rick, not some hypocritical Christian, it's what God determined, what the Creator determined from the beginning. This is how I want it. A man and a woman. This is how you were created. This is how it's supposed to be. And the fight to be calling a homosexual relationship a marriage, it is undermining that. It degrades the very nature of what God created from the beginning. And I think we need to take a a little lead from Kohalat. When he said, remember your Creator. Remember your Creator. This is not about what is your church or what is your religion or, or what does your family think. This is about what does your Creator say. What does He think? I was handed this after first hour. Uh... A couple of things in the news right now that are just shocking. Court hears appeal of a grad student who was expelled for religious beliefs on homosexuality. The Sixth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals in Cincinnati, Ohio, on Tuesday heard the appeal of a former Eastern Michigan under University graduate student who was expelled over her refusal to counsel a homosexual patient. She just said, I I refuse to do that. They kicked her out. Julie Ward enrolled in a counseling practicum course at EMU in 2009 in order to fulfill the requirements for her graduate degree. A few credits shy of finishing her degree, she was assigned a potential client who was seeking assistance regarding a homosexual relationship. However, as a Christian, Ward felt her values and beliefs on homosexuality and extramarital affairs would not allow her to counsel the patient. By the way, that's what a good counselor does. Is when the problem or the issues of of a counselee of a patient go head-to-head with their own beliefs, they step back and say, you know, I'm not the best person to counsel you. You need to go seek someone else because... You know, this, my, my views are going to be different on this. So uh, she went to her supervisor and said, I might not be the right person for this particular client. Her attorney, Jeremy Tedesco of the Alliance Defense Fund, told the Christian Post, consistent with ethical and professional standards on patient referral, Ward was advised to, sign, to assign the patient to another counselor. But that's when her trouble began. 
soon after, Ward was informed that the only way she could remain in the program was if she agreed to undergo a remediation program with the sole purpose to help her see the error of her ways and change her belief system as it related to homosexual relationships. America, 2011. After Ward refused, a disciplinary hearing was held, you're going to love this, whereby an EMU faculty denigrated Ward's Christian beliefs, leading another faculty member to ask this question, if she viewed her brand of Christianity as superior to that of other Christians. You see what's happening, gang? I I know I'm totally sidelining from Song of Songs, but listen to me for a minute. Something that's happening in the church right now is the division. Satan would seek to divide the church. And you know how he's doing it? He's getting some Christians to go soft on biblical truth. And those who are soft on biblical truth would say, Oh, you guys are judgmental. You guys are unfair. You're unfeeling. You don't care. No, I do care. That's why I have to stick to the truth. And this division that's going on, and I'll tell you what, this week, and I saw it in the news this morning, the Presbyterian Church of the the USA ordained its first gay minister. And there's a great move... And I'm not calling out the Presbyterian Church to be judgmental of the Presbyterian Church, but that you know where the, this is a mainline uh, denomination that's now right on board with this and, and happy to be so. By the way, the Presbyterian Church is also supporting a movement that is called Chrislam. The union of Christianity and Islam is kind of a new faith. So lots of stuff going on in that church body. The magnification of marriage. You don't have to look far. You know, you don't have to go to the law in Deuteronomy to figure out God's feelings about marriage and what it's supposed to be. You don't have to go to Romans chapter 1 to see the Lord saying, homosexuality is not the way I created you. All you got to do is go to the Song of Songs. Because right here in the middle, God says, one man, one woman, in one marriage. It's beautiful. That's what I intended. And this book magnifies marriage. That's the first view. Second view, moving on, is the intimacy of Israel. The intimacy of Israel, or for you scholars, you could call this the dispensational view. Because over the years, Jewish people, prayerful rabbis, began to recognize something in this song. That it was more than simply the magnification of marriage of man and woman, but they started calling it the Book of Communion. Because they understood that it spoke of the communion of the Lord with His people. God as the groom. God as the husband. Israel as the bride, the wife. God as the beloved. And Israel as the loved. Ezekiel 16.8 tells us, uh, the Lord speaking, I passed by you and saw you. And behold, you are at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you. Does that sound like marriage? So that you became mine, declares the Lord God. To spread the skirt. That was an act of betrothal, gang. We saw it in the story of Ruth. When Ruth went late at night and laid down at the, at the feet of Boaz, there at the threshing floor, and you realize there's a woman down there, and what's going on with this? And she says, spread your skirt over me, for you are my kinsman redeemer. And he does. He spreads the end of his robe, thereby covering her and saying, I will protect you and I will take you as my own. So when God spreads His skirt over Israel, that's what He's saying to them. But listen, more than a typical male and female union, you know, the scenario where wife compliments husband and husband compliments wife, the union and communion of God with His people Israel exalted them above where they would have been otherwise. In other words, God made Israel better. It's not that Israel had some good days and on Israel's good days God was lifted up by Israel. and you know that, That's the way it is typically in marriage. No, it's more like my marriage. I elevated Cheryl. <laughs> the place where you, you laugh. Apparently you've met us. And you know the truth. With the Lord, that's what He did. He takes hold of Israel naked and squirming on the ground, spreads His skirt over her and says, I will take you as my bride. You come with me. In Jeremiah 31, verse 3, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. But you know what's stunning about Jeremiah's prophecy? It's future tense. It hasn't happened yet. 
What are you talking about? Listen, I mean, this is absolutely mind-boggling. The Lord dealt with Israel and his wife. But if you've read the Old Testament much, the Hebrew Scriptures, you know Israel was very often a whoring wife. Israel was an adulterous wife. Israel chased after other gods for a long season. And God continually pursued and pursued like a husband whose wife had gone into prostitution. Literally, read the book of Hosea. And yet, Jeremiah says, listen to the words, Again, I will build you, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. How do you make an adulteress a virgin? How do you make a a prostitute into a, a, a spotless bride? Well, God does that. God washes and He cleanses. Incredible. He will deal with Israel. And He has a plan for Israel. And in that time when they do come to accept and see Mashiach as Jesus, they will be cleansed by God. In the same way we are, which brings me to the third view for sitting in this wedding. The third view is the courtship of the church. The courtship of the church. You could call this the ecclesiastical view. Ecclesia being the word for church. But I want to make sure we're very clear on this. Though I do believe the Song of Songs speaks of the love of Jesus for His church, the courtship of the church, the church does not replace Israel as the bride. God is capable magnificently of, of working two programs side by side. There is God the Father and His love with his, for His wife Israel. And there is Jesus the Son and His love for His bride, the church. And both ring as true as wedding bells. The church is clearly referred to in Scripture as the Bride of Christ, waiting for the Bridegroom to signal that it is time for the wedding feast. Let me just give you a few of these, and we'll see more as we go through the next few weeks. But many of the wedding symbols and motifs of this song are repeated in the pages of the New Testament. first example would be wedding fragrances. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil, therefore the maidens love you. Wedding fragrances. There's a, there's a scent of marriage in the Song of Songs. There's a scent of marriage in the New Testament as well. John chapter 12, verse 3. Mary took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. No doubt it smelled like a wedding in there. Mary's house in Bethany, the last week Jesus walked the earth before His crucifixion. He's there in the house, she pours the oil on His feet, the perfume smells great, everybody, well the apostles were offended because that could have been sold and used for the poor. Jesus says, the poor you've always had with you. And so they're sitting there in this beautifully fragrant, wonderfully smelling room, and someone must have had the thought, this is like a wedding, man, until Jesus says she's preparing me for my funeral. That'll change the mood real quick, by the way. If you're ever at a party, and someone gives you a gift of some perfume, dab a little on and go, this will make me smell great at the funeral. (laughs) And so the whole tenor changed there. Now, I have, I have found, and it's interesting, weddings and funerals do have a tendency to smell similarly. You know, all the flowers, everything, and, you know, some weddings are like funerals, tragically. But we won't go there. <laughs> the more fragrances are mentioned in Song of Song, and they're replayed in the Gospels. Look at chapter 3 of Song of Songs, verse 6. What is this coming up from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the scented powders of the merchant. Myrrh and frankincense. <laughs> that played out right at the beginning of Jesus' life, didn't it? Matthew 2.11 The Magi saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell to the ground and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. There's something connected here, gang. Something's going on in the Hebrew Song of Songs that is being played out in Jesus Christ. But let me give you a few more examples. The groom's chambers. The groom's chambers. Verse 4 of Song of Songs, chapter 1. Draw me after you. Let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. What did Jesus say? John 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would, not, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Where's that, Lord? In my chambers. In the chambers of the King. Another example we see in the New Testament Scriptures, the wedding veil. The wedding veil. 
Chapter 4, verse 1. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Now, I've never told Cheryl that. And I want to encourage you husbands, be careful with some of the language here to use with your wife, especially when we get to things like two towers. But again, that's for another time. (laughs) Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. The veil. Listen, this is awesome. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. And he says, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. What happens in a wedding when the veil is removed? The groom kisses the bride. A sign of the consecration of the marriage, of the two beginning the process of coming together as one. And that is what we're told when we come to Jesus. The veil is removed. You know, we always talk about this. I've always talked about it. Is the veil being removed so I can see more clearly? Well, perhaps. Perhaps the veil is removed so that I can be more affectionate with my Lord. And so that He and I can have an intimacy that is better than before I believed in Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Paul went on and said, The Lord is Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And so the veil is lifted and the kiss happens. Wedding fragrances, groom's chambers, wedding veil. How about number four? How about the wedding day itself? Song of Songs, chapter 3, verse 11. Go forth, O daughters of Zion. Gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart. The wedding day. Revelation 19, verse 7 tells us, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Does it surprise you? that God would place a wedding song in His Word when the whole thing is headed that direction? The marriage of the Lamb? And perhaps the most obvious imagery in the Song of Songs is the imagery of the bride and the bridegroom. Chapter 4, verse 8, says, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon, journey down from the summit of Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. And not to embarrass my bride, but I remember how my heart was beating on the day of my wedding. I remember when I first saw Cheryl at the end of the aisle, for the first time, and it was like, you know, and my heart beat when I saw her. In the same way we see this, that the bride and the groom and this love between them. Interesting, in the New Testament, before Jesus even came on the scene in His ministry, John the Baptist, in John chapter 3, verse 29, said, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy is of mine has been made full. John, the last of the Hebrew prophets, says, I'm, I'm the friend of the groom. Jesus is the groom, and he's come for his bride. So this imagery continues to play out. Paul used it in Ephesians chapter 5, saying, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But Paul says, amazingly, after this whole passage about how husbands should love their wives, and wives love their husbands, and all of that, he comes to the end and says, Now, now this mystery is great, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Yeah, husbands love your wives. Wives love... I mean, you need to do that, but I'm talking about a marriage relationship of Jesus, the groom, and the church, His bride. Turn over to Song of Songs chapter 8. One more for you, quickly. Chapter 8 and verse 6. And all of these we'll see plus many more as we go on. Song of Songs chapter 8 verse 6. We have sung this verse. Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. Gang, the last piece of imagery just for this morning, a love as strong as death. 
Song of Songs declares a love that is as strong as death. And the first time I heard that, I thought, that's kind of morbid. I mean, guys, did, did you ever, you know, allure your wives or girlfriends by saying, you know, I love you like death, man. <laughs> I really do. As serious and as strong as the grave, that's how I feel about you. I mean, you are like a tomb to me. You got that? You're picking up what I'm putting down? You know what's the matter, sweetheart? Casket your tongue? You know, this whole picture of love and, and, and death. And, and it just sounded weird to me until, until I heard Jesus say, Greater love is no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. And I say, Ah, that's a love as strong as death. That's a love that went to death to prove the love of God. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates His own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Don't miss the passion of the death of Jesus. Who has died for you? Who loves you so much that they took the bullet for you, that they stood in the way of the train, that they put their arms out and got nailed to a cross saying, I love you all the way to the very last breath. Who loves you so much that in spite of everything you've ever done negatively in your life, they still would say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If you wonder if Jesus really loves you, or if it's just Christian speak, you know, Jesus loves you, man. If it's real, if it's legitimate, then gaze into His eyes on the cross. Listen to His voice as He cries, Father, forgive. And you will experience a love as strong as death. There's one more view I want you to understand. And it's, I think, the most important one. Because we can get theological and we can get heady with the other ones, the dispensational view, the literal view, the ecclesiastical view, or we can look at the personalization of this poem. The personal view. Because more than anything else, gang, our place in the reading and in the hearing of the Song of Songs is not to sit back and judge the presentation as if we were at a poetry slam. Our place is not to pontificate on the vast and sometimes impersonal theological positions regarding this song. No, our place, your place, my place, is to respond to the love call of Jesus Christ. That's why this song is here. The song is a wedding invitation, gang. Not to come to the wedding, which far too many Christians do. It's to be in the wedding. And not even as part of the bridal party, but as the bride herself. That's God's call. That's Jesus' call to you and to me. I want you to be on the dais with me. I want you to be united to me. You, personally. Songs chapter 2, verse 16, My beloved is mine, and I am His. Yes, He loves us, but I'll tell you what, He loves me. More than all the rest of you. (laughs) He loves me. My beloved's mine. I am His. Chapter 6, verse 3. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Chapter 7, verse 10. And here's some homework assignment for you for next week. You read this verse at least one time every day. Memorize this verse. Songs, chapter 7, verse 10. I am my beloved's. And listen, His desire is for me. I am my beloved's and His desire is for me. How can we ever sit in church and not know that Jesus Christ desires us? He desires me. Man, if you get nothing else from this song, please, get this. Jesus desires you. And truly, more than anyone else in this room, Jesus desires you. Personally. Now, I want you to back up just for a second. Because I do want to address the backstory to this song. A different perspective than my brother Ray, but a perspective nonetheless. Has anyone ever wondered about that? Well, what is the story behind this song of songs? Because the song's not a narrative. It's unique in Scripture that way. It's not a clear story. It's a series of love lyrics that are sung back and forth. I actually went through the whole thing. And as carefully as possible, took a pink highlighter, a green highlighter, and a blue highlighter, and I just highlighted sections so I could see who was talking. Because it jumps. And sometimes you're not sure. Is this the bride now? Is this the groom? Who is this? Sometimes it's the chorus. Like you see in verse 4, We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. That's not the bride or, or the groom, because if it was, they'd be schizophrenic. Okay? Because they're saying we. So there's a chorus involved in here as well. 
So how do we know what's being truly said? What's the backstory? Well, I'm going to try a couple of them out on you here. It might help if we understand the story behind the music. First backstory. This was first, by the way, suggested by Heinrich Ewald, the father of higher criticism back in the early 1800s. He said, In the hill country north of Jerusalem, there's a family in charge of a vineyard belonging to King Solomon. A young shepherdess was there whose heart had been won by a shepherd boy who had drawn her heart to himself, but their betrothal had been difficult. But King Solomon, as he rode along the lane one day, saw this young shepherdess in the vineyard and was taken by her, and he determined to win her for himself, and so tried by sweet talk to stir up her affections. But she was true to her shepherd boy admirer. Eventually, the king actually had her kidnapped and taken to his palace, to the royal harem, where again he tried to alienate her from her shepherd boy lover in the hills. At times, she was tempted to yield, for her case seemed a hopeless one, but then she would remember her young former lover, and she would say, No, I cannot turn from him. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. So finally, King Solomon set her free, and she went back to the one she loved. Now, the first time I heard that, I thought, That's an intriguing perspective. I never really thought about that before. The characterization of the songs, perhaps that might be what's going on. And many have found that to be an intriguing approach to the song. No doubt, Walt Disney would have had a field day with it. And it could be the backstory. But if it is, there are a couple of bad notes in the arrangement. First off, if that's the story, then Solomon is more villainous than valiant. You know, he's the one trying to steal her away from her young lover. And the problem with that is that rather than a lover pinning a love song, he suddenly becomes a villain in a musical melodrama. Every time Solomon enters the scene, I want to boo and hiss. You know, I want to say, oh, bad guy, no, no, I'm, I'm voting for the, for the young shepherd lover. And I, I don't think that's the intention of the Song of Songs. Furthermore, when we turn to God's Word, Solomon is actually viewed by the Holy Spirit as a type or a picture of the coming Messiah, Jesus. What do you mean? Solomon is the son of David. Jesus is the son of David. Solomon is a prince of peace. Shaloma means peace. His very name is peace. He reigns over Israel in a unified time of peace, just as Jesus will. And the Holy Spirit doesn't use one example or person to portray Christ in one place, and then use the same example or person to portray something negative in another place, as in a villain or a bad guy. Jesus himself recognizes his messianic connection or link to Solomon when he says the following, Matthew 12:42, The Queen of the South will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Now you and I hear that and go, oh cool, Jesus is greater than Solomon. To a Jewish person to hear that, Solomon was the greatest king. Solomon was at the top, the epic of Israel's grandeur and glory and peace and wonder. Solomon was the guy. David, obviously, probably the most beloved among Israel, but Solomon, man, when he was king, everything was great. And you're telling me, Jesus, that you're greater than Solomon? Yeah. Yeah. Because the son of David is Messiah. Furthermore, in some of the most beautiful and touching passages in the book where we know Solomon is the one doing the speaking... Solomon would be more disingenuous than he would be delighted. His words sometimes take on a vain flattery. If he doesn't really love her, if it's more about his own lust and just filling up the harem some more, more like winning a prize to add to his collection of wives. And as I said to you before, I really believe Solomon's heart in the writing of the Song of Songs is to magnify the ideal, the best of all possible marriages. This is a song that is extolling the highest form of love. Yes, Solomon had many wives in his own life. But the point of the song is not so much his personal story as it is the portrait of holy love as it plays out before us. So let me give you a second possibility, a second backstory. In the north country of Israel, in the mountain district of Ephraim, King Solomon had a vineyard. We know that from chapter 8, verse 11. 
He let it out to an Ephraimite family to tend it. The father's absent from the story. But there's at least a mother. There are at least two brothers. There are two sisters, an older sister and a little sister. The two brothers don't appreciate the beauty or the worth of the older sister, and they force her to work the vineyard herself. In fact, she says in chapter 1, verse 6, My mother's sons, her brothers, were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. That is, because she had to care for the vineyard outside, she was unable to care for her own beauty. The vineyard that was her body, her face, her hair. And so she would be out there sunburned, wind-blown, dry-handed, labor-weary from working in the vineyard. But one day, as she's out there working the field, she looks up and there's a handsome stranger. A shepherd, perhaps, from a distant region. And she says to him, there in chapter 1, verse 6, Do not stare at me because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me. But this shepherd looks at her. He sees beneath the dust the beauty. In fact, he calls her most beautiful among women. Guys, your wives need to hear that. They need to hear that. Yeah, but what if she comes out with like the curlers and the robe and the big fuzzy slippers? Tell her. It would be to your benefit. Tell her. She is most beautiful among women. If the face cream's hanging off, she's still underneath that, in there. Tell her. And he sees that. And he calls her most beautiful. And that gets her attention. And affection is sparked between the two. And the stranger shepherd, ah, he wins her heart and she starts to call him beloved. But he has to go away. She begs him to stay, but he promises someday I'm going to come back and when I come back I will take you as my bride. But he's gone a long time. She dreams of him. She thinks she hears him coming from time to time. She watches for him. She talks to him as though he were right there. She longs for him. All the while, she believes he will come back. Then one day, a grand and glorious procession approaches, kicking up the dust of the wilderness, moving into the hill country of Ephraim, and people begin running in all directions and shouting. And they're saying, chapter 3, verse 6, What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfume with myrrh and frankincense, and all scented powders of the merchant? Behold, it's the traveling couch of Solomon. Sixty mighty men around it, the mighty men of Israel. All of them are wielders of the sword, expert at war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. King Solomon has made for himself a sedan chair from the timber of Lebanon. He made his post of silver and his back of gold. See, the people are running around and they're gathering because here comes this great entourage, this huge procession. Then as they approach, wow, it's it's King Solomon, and here he comes. Oh, he made this with silver and gold and purple fabric, lovingly fitted out by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion. Gaze on King Solomon with the crown to which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of the gladness of his heart. And the caravan stops right in front of the shepherd girl tending the vineyard. And Solomon steps out. And she looks at him and realizes he's the shepherd boy. Same guy. That her shepherd is the king. And her king has come for her. And he says, how beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Now Rick, where would you get that? That's our story. That is our story. You know, we were under the sun, living life, weary and worn and working the land. That's what happened. Genesis chapter 3, go back and look. Tilling the land, working with our hands, and, and, and not able to tend to the vineyard of our hearts because we're tending to the, to the world around us. And He comes to us and He calls us beautiful. And we know we're not. <laughs> we knew when we first heard the, the voice of Jesus say, Hey, come to me. We're like, uh, Me? Don't look at me. I'm sunburned. I'm swarthy. I've been out. My hair's a mess. And He calls us beautiful. And we fall for Him. And He says, I'm going to make you my bride. I'll be back. I promise I'll be back. But He went away, didn't He? And all this while we're waiting for Him. And sometimes we think we hear Him coming. And we talk to Him as though He's here. He is. And we long for Him and we pray that 
That day will return. And when our beloved returns, gang, not only will He be the good shepherd that we met, but He will be the glorious King that we desire. It's our story. And at the end of the story, we get to bear His name. Perhaps that's the greatest reason why I lean toward this understanding of the Song of Songs. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. The chorus is singing. And the chorus says, Come back, come back, O Shulamite. Come back, come back, that we may gaze at you. The bride is called a Shulamite. Oh, no doubt she hails from the land of Shulam, right? Or... Shulam city, or isn't that why she'll be called a Shulamite? Listen, gang. Shulamite in the Hebrew is very simply the feminine form of Shaloma. Solomon. She takes his name. This song ends with her taking the name of Solomon as her own. Isn't that beautiful? Lifted out from the fields. Vanity and weariness, the bride is taken by the king and she becomes the bride, the Shulamite bride, the bride who bears the name of Shaloma, her husband, the king. Gang, this is Jesus' invitation to you. To be captivated by Him, yes, but not just to come to the wedding, as I said before, but to be in the wedding and to bear His name. And you can bear His name today. Christian. Christ. A follower of Jesus. And I am not among those who are tired of the name Christian. And I'm not among those who say, well, we need a different name because that's got so much bad stuff attached to it. You know what's attached to it? Jesus is. And so I am proud to be a Christian. I am proud to bear the name of Christ in my life. And I will bear it every day until He comes back. Every day until He calls me to the chambers. Every day until the groom lovingly sweeps us all off of our feet. And when He does, He says in Revelation 3.12, He who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God. By the way, what else comes down out of heaven? The bride. The bride does. Read Revelation 19. I saw coming down out of heaven one as a bride. And the marriage feast of the Lamb happens. And He says, I will give you my new name. Wow. You can bear His name today. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're here for the first time or you're visiting this this church in a barn and you're going, what's this all about? It's all about Jesus, man. It's not about the Bridge Christian Fellowship. It's not about any other logo. It's about Jesus. And He loves you with an everlasting love. And this morning would say to you, as He has said to me over and over in my life, Rick, I just want you to be mine. My desire is for you. If you've never taken the name of Christ as your own, I beg you to do it today. We're going to stand up. We're going to sing a song. There will be shepherds in the back. And you can go and pray with one of them and receive Christ as your beloved today. Or if you have any prayer requests or needs, take care of this while we sing this song. Let's stand together.